Our text today is 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5, and the title of my sermon is Drawing Near to God. Drawing Near to God. In some ways, I suppose we could say that it is a natural desire for men to draw near to God, because in creation, God created us in His image, and created us with an ability to commune with Him, to fellowship with our Creator, something that most of the creatures that He made do not have a capacity for. And so in that respect, man is religious. In some ways, he is incurably religious. And we see that in the many, many different religions around the world. And we see that in the modern-day emphasis in America upon spirituality, which seems to be no particular religion or a combination of many, makes no difference, but just some kind of emphasis upon things which are spiritual rather than material. However, if this is a natural desire, we need to realize that sin has corrupted this desire. And man does not have a natural desire to draw near to the true God who made him. Somebody said that man is looking for God like a thief is looking for a policeman. And we are not looking for the true God. Our natural religious desire, our natural bent towards spirituality, has been corrupted by sin. And so men are constantly seeking false gods and are seeking God for wrong reasons. And that's why there is such a myriad of religions and a myriad of different kinds of gods, because man is busy constructing God in his own image rather than drawing near to the God who has revealed himself as he is. And man is drawing near to religion for all the wrong reasons, for selfish reasons, rather than for the right reason, which is to know and worship the God which made us. However, God in his grace has given his truth to guide us so that even fallen and sinful man may draw near to God if he will go in God's appointed way if he will follow the directions which God has given to us. And therefore, as we come to 1 Peter chapter 2, we come actually to a new section in verses 4 through 10, but it builds upon the previous section that we looked at in verses 1 through 3 and indeed upon what has gone before us in chapter 1. But in these next verses, Peter uses a great measure, a great quantity, I guess you should say, of Old Testament imagery. And he shows that New Testament believers are the new people of God and therefore possess all the blessings of Old Testament Israel, but in greater measure. Our text today is addressed to believers, but there's a great deal of truth here for the unconverted as well if the Spirit of God will give them ears to hear and eyes to see. Drawing near to God, a simple outline, who, why, and how. Drawing near to God, first of all, who. And I suppose by that word you might think I'm drawing attention to who may draw near to God. And that's not what I have in mind because that's not what is in the text. But I will mention just briefly that the Bible tells us that whosoever will may come. 
And if you have a desire to draw near to the God who is the one true and living God, the creator of the universe, and if you will come in his appointed way, you may draw near. Anyone who is here may draw near. Anyone under the sound of my voice is invited to draw near. Anyone in all the world may draw near. But the who that I have in mind is the to whom do we come. And Peter says, coming to him as to a living stone. And he identifies who it is we come to by this rather puzzling language, living stone. And the three Old Testament quotations that Peter will use in verses 4 through 10 all have that concept of stone in them, and he applies them all to Christ. And we'll see more of those in detail as we move deeper into this section. But for now, simply to see that Peter is calling Christ, the Messiah, the appointed one of God, a living stone. Therefore, we realize that Christians are not worshiping a dead monument, a dead mausoleum, or a dead principle, but we are worshiping someone who is alive, a living Savior. But this is puzzling terminology because stones lack life. We don't think of stones as living. We think of stones as dead, very dead. In fact, some of our figures of speech allude to that when we talk about something being stone cold or other such language. But here in a surprising phrase, Peter joins together two things that in our experience are never joined together. Number one, a stone And number two, life, a living stone. And that arresting language causes us to perk up and pay closer attention to what he is communicating to us about divine truth. The word stone that Peter uses, lithos, means a building stone. A stone that has been prepared and shaped to go into a particular part, a particular place in a building according to the architect's and builder's plans. Peter does not use the word petros. That's the word for a loose stone lying in a field. That's also the word from which Peter's name is derived. When Jesus said, your name has been Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter, Petros, a stone. If Peter understood that to mean that he had a foundational important part In fact, the preeminent part in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ now would have been a good time to mention that. But he doesn't. A living stone. And it's not Peter. It's Christ. A living stone. When we realize that this stone does refer to Jesus, the Christ, we realize, therefore, that the Adjective living reminds us of his resurrection. This one was dead, but is alive forevermore. This one died and was buried, but arose from the dead to eternal life. He arose not just to the life that he had before he died, but he arose to a new kind of life, a brand new life. A life that will never end. A life that can never die. He arose to eternal life. To life that God alone can bestow. And he has that life in himself. He is the living stone. 
Furthermore, Peter's phraseology speaks to us of relationship. Beyond resurrection, it speaks of relationship because it tells us that we are coming to Him. He is alive in heaven. He is a real person. He is someone that we can approach to. We can draw near to. We can come to. He is not the dead founder of a religion who has died many years ago and whose followers therefore can come to a tomb where the body of their founder resides but is no longer living or can come to some some uh, remembrance of what he said and remember what was spoken when he was living and fondly recall those words. And indeed we do all of that, but we do far more than that. We come to the one who spoke those words who is even now alive and is in heaven and continues to speak by his spirit through his word and to make it alive to our hearts. Resurrection and relationship It also speaks of reproduction. He is a living stone, and he is therefore able to create living stones, plural. We come to him in verse 4 as to a living stone, but in verse 5, you also as living stones. The life of the living stone is imparted to those who trust in him. They become living stones. There is a reproduction that is going on here, not in the manner that we are accustomed to upon earth, but something that is far greater and is very mysterious and is totally divine. But we come to a living stone that we might come to the one who can impart his life to us. Perhaps that's what the writer Isaiah had in mind when he said in Isaiah 53:10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief When you make his soul an offering for sin, this of course is talking about Jesus Christ in prophecy 700 years before he died. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall see his seed. The Savior, the Messiah, who has made an offering for sin, has children. He has seed. He has progeny. Spiritual seed. He is the living stone who is able to make living stones. And so we come to a living stone. As I've already told you, Peter alludes to three Old Testament passages that refer to the Messiah, Christ, as stone. And two of them actually come into his phraseology in our text even before he quotes these verses from the Old Testament, which he will do a moment later. The first one is Isaiah 28:16. Therefore says the Lord God, behold I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. And then in addition to that he refers to Psalm 118 verse 22 which says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And in both of those texts, Christ is referred to as the cornerstone. He is the most important stone in a building that God is constructing. And so to whom do we come? We come to Christ, a living stone. 
The hymn writer said, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We could also sing, On Christ the living rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. But though we come to a living stone, we also, Peter tells us, come to a rejected stone. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Two contrasting opinions, man's and God's. And they couldn't be more opposite. There couldn't be a greater contrast between natural man's estimation of this living stone and God Almighty's estimation of this same living stone. What is man's estimation? A living stone rejected indeed by men. Rejected. A word that means examined, tested, found wanting, and rejected. Unsuitable for man's desires and expectations. Natural men in Christ's day, represented by the Jewish religious leaders, examined Jesus, examined his claims to being the Christ of God, examined him according to their expectations and desires for who the Messiah should be, what he should be like, what he should accomplish in their nation. And they found him entirely wanting. He was not the Messiah that they were willing to accept. And so having examined and tested him, they rejected him, they crucified him, they did away with him, or thought they did. They tried to do away with him. And why did this happen? These who were the custodians of the religion handed down by God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. Why did such a thing happen to these ones who were students of the Bible? Well, it is because they had replaced God's word with human opinion, and they did it all within the framework of religion. They hadn't rejected religion. They hadn't rejected the terminology of Scripture. They had not rejected Yahweh, the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had not rejected the external features of their religion, the the, uh, sacrifices, the priesthood, the temple, these things that dealt with external matters of worship, all prescribed by God. They had not rejected any of that, but they had replaced the content of this religion delivered by God, revealed by God. They had replaced that with their own desires, their own expectations, their own definitions of terminology, their own concept of God and of God's Messiah. They had replaced it all with their own human opinions. Right in the midst of divinely revealed religion, they had done this. And in doing so, they had therefore lost their ability to understand God's word. I trust the seriousness of this will sink into your soul. We far too often treat God's word as highly optional matters that we can either take or leave, accept or reject. Even even as Christians, we can do this. Even as Christians, we will do this unless we are very 
closely guided by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God and very yielded to the Word of God. We can replace God's Word with our thoughts. We can refuse to allow God's Word to correct our thoughts. We can hold on to our opinions about what we think things ought to be, how, the way we think things should be, and hold on to those so strongly that we will not yield to divine revelation that tells us how things really are. We can hear the commandments of God and choose to disobey them. We can reject God's truth in so many ways. And this is not simply a matter of making poor choices, though indeed it is, but what it will do is eventually it will erode our ability to receive and understand much other truth that God has for us. God will withdraw his light and leave us either in partial or in total blindness. And that's what's happened to these religious leaders of the Jews. In rejecting the truth which God gave them, they were left in blindness so that in reading their scriptures they could not see the most important parts. And in examining Jesus Christ, they could not see for the life of them how he related to the promised Messiah. It seems so obvious, so plain to us. We look at Christ, we look at the Old Testament scriptures, we say, how could anybody have missed that? But, dear friend, all of us can miss a great deal of God's truth if we aren't willing to receive the truth which he has given to us. And so Christ's rejection in the days of the Jews culminated in his crucifixion. But Christ continues to be rejected today. Rejected by those who hear God's word and reject it. Man's opinion of Christ is that he doesn't like him the way he is, truly in the Bible. And so he either will reject him outright or he will scramble to remake Christ into a more acceptable, friendly Definition, a more acceptable, friendly Jesus, a more acceptable, friendly Christ, which the natural man is willing to accept and then call himself a believer in Christ, call himself a follower of Christ, just like these Jews called themselves followers of Moses, followers of Abraham, followers of Jehovah and the Old Testament scriptures. But they were not. They were not. Having turned their hearts from God, they now were sealed in deception and blindness and could not see the truth any longer. So we need to realize that when we come to Christ, we're coming to a rejected stone. We're coming to one that the world does not like. But we are also coming to a chosen stone, one that God highly values. Coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Here's God's estimation. This one is chosen. That's the same word that is translated elect in the beginning of Peter's epistle, chapter 1, verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It means chosen. It means elected. It means selected. And Jesus Christ has been selected to be the world's Savior. Whether the world likes him or not, 
He's the one that God chose to be the Savior of mankind. And furthermore, he is the one that God has appointed because he's perfectly suitable to the need. In fact, he's the only one who is. If the world is going to have have a Savior, it has to be this one. There is no other one. There is no other possibility. If there's anyone who can save us from our sins, if there's anyone who can return us to the God who made us from whom we have departed because of our sin, if there's anyone who can rescue us from just condemnation and bring us to eternal life, if there's anyone who can bring us into the presence of a thrice holy and righteous God, it is this one, Jesus the Christ, the God-man, the one that God sent from heaven, God himself, wrapped in human flesh, God becoming man and dying on the cross. He's the only one. If you don't grab this Savior, there will be another one. If you won't like this Savior, then whatever one you like is not going to save you and cannot. He's chosen by God and he's precious in the sight of God. A word that means costly, highly prized, rare, beyond all estimation. So, man's opinion, rejected. God's opinion, chosen and precious. Choice and precious, we might say. Question, whose estimation is correct? God's or man's? And if we want to draw near to God, we're going to have to side with God. If we want to draw near to God, we're going to have to have the same opinion of His Son, Jesus Christ, that He has. If we're going to draw near to God, we've got to come God's way. We're going to have to come to the One who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. If we won't come by Him, as He is revealed in His Word, then there is no other way. But if we'll come by Him then we will have access unto God. We have to choose. We have to choose Christ and side with God, or else we have to reject Christ as He's revealed in Scripture and side with the world. We've got to choose. There's there's no way to hold on to both. There's no way to have it both ways. God or the world? That is God's truth or the world's opinion. God's estimation of Jesus Christ or the world's opinion of Jesus Christ. You're going to have to decide. Some of you are trying to sit on the fence. You're going to have to get off the fence. I hope you get off on the wrong side, on the right side. Not the wrong side, the right side, God's side. Because you can't have it both ways. You can't be approved both by God and by the world. We'd love that, wouldn't we? We don't want to be disapproved by anybody. We don't want other people sizing us up and rejecting us. We don't like anyone to have a bad opinion of us. But dear friends, if you're going to have Christ, you've got to identify with Him. You've got to share His his, uh, humiliating condition. You've got to accept the reproach and the rejection which He had from the world 
If you're not willing to do that, dear friend, you, don't, you aren't really willing to embrace Christ. If you're not willing to do that, you really don't have Christ, whatever you may say, whatever you may claim, because you can't have both. No man can serve two masters. It's one or the other. It's not both and. It's either or. And what is true of individuals is also true for churches. And churches need to learn this lesson. It seems evident that in our day, many churches are more concerned about becoming accepted by the world, being well thought of by the world, having a good opinion by the world in general, as if somehow that's going to make them more effective in, in the reaching people and winning people for Christ. Oh, don't you realize, dear friend, that only makes us... If the, as the church, if we do this, that only makes us more deceptive. That only makes us a tool to help men be deceived according to the desire of their heart in the direction where they want to be deceived. We help them on in self-deception rather than confronting them with the truth and calling them to radical departure from the world in order to have Jesus Christ and to bear his reproach. Church can't have it two ways any more than each man individually can have it two ways. The church cannot be approved by the world and also be approved by Jesus Christ. The church cannot be popular with the world and also be approved by Jesus Christ. The church cannot be something that the world in general is going to like and applaud and also be approved by Jesus Christ. It's not both and. It's either or. Churches have to choose. So who do we come to? A living stone. Why do we come? Why do we come? Verse 5. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You want to draw near to God? Why? Why do you want to come? And your motive in coming to God is equally important as the source, the one you come to, the God that you come to, the living stone that you come to as the only way to God. Your motive as to why you are coming is also important. Why do you want to come to God? Do you want to come in order for God to enhance your old life, or do you want Him to replace your old life with a new one? Do you want to come to God to make your old life more successful than it is now? Or do you want to come to Him so that He may give you new goals, new desires, a whole new definition of success? Remember what James said about prayer in James chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. When you ask in prayer... For something, when your motive for asking is to, to satisfy your own fleshly desires, that is a wrong prayer, and you will not receive what you pray for in that request. Don't you realize it's even possible to pray to receive Christ with wrong motives and wrong desires, that you're praying to receive Christ in order that he might at least preserve you from destruction while you pursue your old life with no desire or intention 
for your life to be changed by Him? Do you think God is going to answer that prayer? Now, the fact of the matter is that when anyone comes to Christ, Christ returns far more than we give. We cannot outgive God. And when we come to Christ, we will have life and have it more abundantly, both on this earth as well as in the life to come for all eternity. But only if we are willing to give up our life, only if we're willing to sacrifice for Him. We give our life away that we might receive His new life. We find really in surprise that the life He gives is more enjoyable, more satisfying than the old life we had, right? Here and now, it's a far better life. But if our whole motive in going to Him is to somehow beef up the old life, energize the old life, give us more of the old life, temporal goals, temporal desires, earthly desires, fleshly desires, then we haven't come to Him at all. So why do we come? Peter says we come, first of all, to share his life. You also, as living stones, you come to the living stone in order to become living stones, in order to share the life that is his. We come to share his life, not for him to to enhance our life, our present life. We come to him. You also, literally, even you yourselves, There's amazement in that. It's amazing that fallen sons of Adam are able to come and to become living stones. To come to Christ and to become living stones. That that mere men, that sinful men should have such a privilege is almost beyond apprehension. It's almost more than we can imagine. But indeed such is the grace of God. And this is true. We come as living stones. And now Peter extends his strange imagery from verse 4 into verse 5. This living stone that described Jesus Christ now becomes the living stones that describe all of God's people who by faith in Jesus Christ are joined to him. We come to share his life. We are joined to him. We are not, in ourselves, naturally, living stones. We have to be made living stones by the work of the Holy Spirit who imparts the very life of Christ to us. We have to be joined to Him, and then we share His life. Listen to the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.19 and following. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Sounds really like the same thing that Peter is saying. And it is. So why do we come? We come, number one, to share his life because we have been made by the Holy Spirit to understand that our old life is wretched, it is corrupted, it is worthless, and it is dying, and it is condemning us. 
And we come to Him, therefore, to receive the life which He can give, to replace that old life that we have by our first verse, birth. We come, secondly, to advance His kingdom. If we come to share His life, not for Him to enhance ours, we come to advance His kingdom, not for Him to advance ours. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. A spiritual house. The Greek word oikos often in the Bible refers to the temple. And now Peter is taking the imagery of the temple, a physical, visible structure made out of stones, dead stones, And he's saying, here's something that's better. This is a living temple, a living house, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, not made out of dead stones, but made out of living stones. The chief stone, Jesus Christ himself, and everyone who is joined to Christ made alive in him, and we are a living temple formed And indwelt by God's Spirit. It is a spiritual temple, a spiritual house. You also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house. You are built up, or maybe more literally, you are being built up. It is progressive. And it is collective. You are being built together. Christians who become Living stones are not loose, unconnected, individual stones scattered around in the field. But Christians who become living stones are all connected to Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, or another way of putting it, all connected to our head, Jesus Christ. But in being connected to him, we are also all connected one to another and One is as true as the other, and one is as necessary as the other. You can't be part of this house without being connected to Christ. You can't be part of this house without being connected to everyone else who is connected to Christ. We're joined to Christ and to one another. Paul said in Ephesians 4.15 and 16, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We're all joined together, folks. Paul didn't use so much the temple analogy, though he did at times. But he he tended to prefer the analogy of a human body and to tell us that the body of Christ, spiritual and invisible, is nevertheless in many ways like the human body, namely that every part of the body is connected to the whole body and it's all interconnected and we all share in the life of the body together. We are all joined one to another in Christ. And so that tells us that drawing close to Christ also increases our integration into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible knows nothing of individual godliness that is out of touch with the body of Christ. If you're trying to pursue your relationship with God alone, then 
something's badly amiss. Whatever you are doing and trying to draw near to God and think you are being built up in Him, if being built up in Christ, if drawing near to Christ isn't also at the same time building you up in your relationship to other believers, to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're not being built up at all the way you think you are. Something is very wrong. And so we come, number one, to share His life. And we come, number two, to advance His kingdom, to become a part of His church and what He is doing. And we come, number three, to worship Him. To worship Him. Our desire is to worship Him, not for others to worship us. We come to Him to receive His life, not for Him to make our life better. We come to Him to advance His kingdom, not for Him to build our little kingdom better. We come to Him to worship Him, not so that He'll make us better, so that other people will want to worship us. We are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A holy priesthood. What a privilege. Priests are those who are able to draw near to God. A privilege that the unconverted do not have. They have no access to God. They have no way to draw near to Him. Unconverted people are described in the Bible as being afar off. And no way to come except through Jesus Christ, the divinely appointed way. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, everything about that system spoke about restricted access to God. You could only get partway to God. You could only get to God by little degrees. And you could only get to God by representatives. To get to God, you had to be represented by others. The wife and the children had to be represented by the husband and father who came and brought the sacrifice. And the father had to be represented by the sacrifice. And he also had to be represented by the priest. And the priest would offer the sacrifice. And then he could go into the holy place and worship God there. But even he couldn't go into the holy of holies, the most immediate place where God was, Only the high priest, one of the priests, could do that one day a year with the proper sprinkling of the blood. Everything about that Old Testament system said, don't get too close. You can come, you can, you can have a relationship with God, but don't get too close. Because until Christ died, The real sacrifice that brings men nigh to God had not been made. And so everything else was simply a type, a symbol. It was teaching, teaching, teaching the necessity of the one sacrifice, Jesus Christ. But what a privilege we have now. Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has made the eternal sacrifice. Christ has imparted life to those who trust in Him. Christ has made us kings and priests. We are priests. We have access into the very presence of God. We can draw near to Him. Unrestricted. And priests were those who worshipped God in certain prescribed ways in the Old Testament. 
They had the carefully prescribed sacrifices that they offered. And we too can worship God by bringing sacrifices. We are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We don't offer sacrifices of atonement. That's already been done. We certainly don't offer sacrifices of merit. There is no merit on our part. So what do we do? We offer sacrifices of praise. Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore let us, or therefore by him rather, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. That's a sacrifice with which he's well pleased. If you are in Christ, joined to him, a believer in Christ, a priest, then you have the privilege of offering praise to him, thanks to him, that is highly acceptable to him, that is very desirable to him. That's one of the reasons why when we gather together in corporate worship, we sing God's praises. We sing hymns of praise, of testimony, of thanksgiving, of adoration, of worship. We try to make our hymns God-centered. We try to make our hymns filled with truth. We try to make our hymns something that will truly express Worship and praise and glory and honor to Him with our lips. That's why it's so important for every lip to sing His praise, for every worshiper to open His mouth and join in praising Him. That's what we do as New Testament believers. That's why we come, is to worship Him. The sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of deeds. Hebrews thirteen sixteen. But do not forget to do goods, to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Do good and share. Giving of ourselves, giving of our time, giving to others in deeds of kindness, sharing, giving of our material resources. These are ways of worshiping God. These are sacrifices that New Covenant priests can offer up to God in acceptable worship to Him. The sacrifice of consecration, Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. To consecrate our whole life to Him, in sacrifice, in praise, in dedicated service that's highly pleasing to God. Paul put it this way in Philippians 2.17. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. If I'm poured out as a drink offering, that makes a reference, that's a reference to an Old Testament sacrifice, one of the Many different sacrifices. Paul said, my life is like a drink offering poured out in worship to God. And I'm thankful for the opportunity. A sacrifice well-pleasing unto God. Well, that's who we come to. And that's why we come. And we'll have to talk about how we come another day. Shall we pray? What an inestimable privilege we have, O Lord, to be able to draw near 
to the God who is holy, to the God who is a consuming fire, to the God whose brightness consumes all sinners that come anywhere near his presence. And yet, O Lord, through Jesus Christ, the one you gave, the one you sent, the sacrifice you appointed for the very purpose that sinners might draw near to you, in him, O Lord, we gladly come, we draw near, not presumptuously, but we come boldly by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we draw near into your presence to receive your life, to worship you, and to serve you. Help us, O Lord, to do that this day and in the days to come. We ask in Jesus' name.